Gallagher Premiership season is done and dusted, and it is Saracens that have returned to its summit after a tumultuous 24 months. They prevailed over Sale in a thrilling final at Twickenham, and today we've got a review of a historic Premiership season between myself, Nick Kane, Brendan Gallagher, and digital editor Nick Powell. Congratulations to Saracens, who've completed their Premiership resurgence. Uh, last week's guest, Alex Zazowski, and co were crown champions at Twickenham at the weekend. Um, end of season review today. It's just the columnist. Slightly different makeup this week, though, as Chris Hewitt can't be here. His replacement, sorry, in charm and, of course, good looks is Nick Powell. How are you, Nick? Yeah, I was really good until I was compared to uh, Chewy for looks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, great. I only need to get a compliment, mate. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Nick Kane's here. Brendan Gallagher is here as well. Um, Let's jump straight into the Prem final. We've obviously got... We, I want to look back at the whole season as well. Um, I was at Twickenham on Sunday, not on Saturday, uh, watching the World 15 versus Barbarians. Catch the highlights if you haven't yet. It was it was some phenomenal rugby on show. Um, Brendan, give your reflections on Saturday's game, Saris versus Sale. Uh, as anticipated, it was a really good match. and you know We had high hopes for it, and it was a good game. Uh, I always felt... I predicted Sale. I was wrong. On the day, it always felt like Saracens were winning it. And yet, when I reflect on it, um, Sale were two points up with 10 minutes to go and had a, a line out on the Saracens line. It, you know, it could have been very different. They, 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 could, they had an opportunity to win that match. And then Mauro Toji did one of his sort of trademark turnovers. You know, the right side won. Um, I thought Owen Farrell was absolutely terrific. He gave us the full range of his game and some and he played with a smile and he didn't give the ref a hard time I mean it was a very good day for Owen Farrell in opposition to George Ford uh, and it, it just it was a unusually feel-good occasion on what's been a really difficult season for, for English Premiership Rugby. I think that's a good way of putting it um, people were hoping for a block blockbuster classic Nick Kane I'll come to you first do you feel like this was up there with Prem finals I mean the last three or four have been absolutely phenomenal um, no, I thought it was a it was a really uh, keenly contested game, and that's very very good news from a Premiership point of view, because Sale looked like a side who could challenge Saracens down the line. Um, so that's that's good news. It, it wasn't a classic. It was a very good game though. It was a very good contest, um, and Sale gave Saracens a, a run for their money. They gave them they gave them plenty of trouble particularly at the scrum. And, um, you know, they've got, they you know, Roebuck given given sort of a a, a very fortuitous cross kick by, by Acker van der Merwe, which came off the side, which he intended to chip down the middle of the pitch, but came off the side of his boot and landed <laughs> perfectly for, um, you know, for Roebuck, but he took his chance brilliantly. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, May, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Malin's, Sort of matched uh, the uh, the sale pair, I think, for 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 firepower. He's really come on this season um, tremendously, I think. And uh, yeah, so overall, I thought it was a very good final. You mentioned Aka van der Merwe. It was a pretty good day for hookers, wasn't it? And I wanted to ask what your thoughts on Theo Dan's prospects of being included in the World Cup squad. He came on what ten minutes in, maybe for Jamie yeah. George went down early. So dynamic in the carry, reminded me of Skulk Brits a little bit. Um, yeah, and the spiral fifty twenty two, which you don't. see. I was going to say he, he's not a bad fly half. So no. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Listen, I, I think he's a he's a guy with a lot of promise, and um, he. But but I think he's still got. Uh, you know, he had a he had a very good game. 
You know, things earlier this season, he had a bit of problem with his line-out throwing in premiership games. And in this game, you could see, and this is what Saracens do, they improve players. They work on them and they improve them. And his line-out throwing, I think I'm pretty well right in saying, was was almost fail-safe. So having to come on for somebody like George, and with George's experience, and also with the excellence of his line-out throwing, for it really to be pretty well seamless, and for what he did around the field as well, yeah, very, you know, he can be proud of his contribution, no question. Nick Powell, the sort of turning point in the game, well, not the turning point, but the nail in the coffin was um, Ivan Van Zyl's try, which was overturned. And there was a little bit of debate in the commentary box because Luke Pierce was after conclusive evidence and maybe Austin Healy felt it was conclusive um, and the others didn't. I can't exactly remember which way around it was. Did you feel that it should have been overturned? Yeah, it was a really interesting one because there's a, there was a very similar example um, with Wales-Italy uh, last year, um, but it, it was the reverse. So Wales weren't, weren't awarded a try initially. Uh, then they looked at it, and from the footage, it looked almost completely clear that there's no way that he couldn't um, have scored. Um, but... Uh, the TMO didn't overturn it. And I think that is the consistency that should be applied, ultimately. Um, you know, never... However, uh, it, yeah, it would be it would be hard to see how he hadn't got over, but I just don't think there was enough evidence to overturn it. It's interesting that you mentioned the consistency because that's exactly what Wayne Barnes alluded to when he came on a couple of weeks ago, was it doesn't matter what the rules are, just be consistent with it. So I've definitely Nick, do you have any views on it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, look, I mean, it was interesting because in the first half, Van der Merwe's try um, went, I'm pretty sure, went to the TMO as well. And it, you know, it looked almost certain as if he had grounded it, but there was no actual footage to show that it was grounded. And you had the same thing, um, I think, with Van Zyl. Van Zyl said, and I think he's probably right, you know, he got the ball to the line. And although Carpenter got really got underneath it very well, I'm sure that, well, I would say what Van Zyl said, which is that some of the ball will have touched the surface. Um, not Probably only just marginally, but, but uh, I think it did. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, Luke Pierce han- handled it really well, but it, it does just show that, you know, the TMO, it, it goes back to the fact that they need more cameras and they need to use the technology. If they'd got a chip in the ball, they could have told, you know. So mm-hmm. these things, the, the technology's there, they need to invest in it and use it. Rugby's really lagged behind in that respect. Yeah, I do remember it now, and actually, I thought it wasn't a try. I thought there was yeah. enough carpenter hand under the ball, and you know, it's, it's like the cricket catch, isn't it? When the ball hits, splatters the fingers, uh, and it's on the grass. You know, has it been grounded? Now, I think he had almost all his hand and fingers under the tip of the ball, but whether any of it went through, I don't know. Uh, Austin thought so, didn't he? Um, it 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 rolled. Whether there was evidence of that, I don't know. And think about I, it, I would have given it. The angle of the ball it rolled at one stage slightly, and that's mm. when I think that people thought, you know, that's that's a try. And Healy uh, managed to persuade Ben Kay, who was very much in your in your camp, 
<laughs> that uh, that it was a try. So but listen, it's one of those it's one of those moot points. Yeah, yeah, and it's certainly not being sweat over. I think the general consensus is the right team won, and that was a very, yeah. very marginal call. That to be honest, could have gone either way. Um, let's focus on the winners very, very briefly. Brendan, I'll come to you about this. Just talk a little bit about how this salaries is very different. Obviously, some people would argue their previous premiership wins are tainted under the salary, um, given the salary cap uh, breach. Now, now we've got a salaries team that is at the peak of its powers, and we know that they will be operating within regulations. But also, it is quite the story to go from zero to hero in the space of, what, 24 short months. Mm. Yeah, I had a a pop at writer about this on Sunday. I I think it's an outstanding premiership uh, title. I think there was a sea change in mindset there. I think um, it was quite humbling what happened to Saracens. And I'm one of the guys who was quite sympathetic towards them. I thought they got quite a tough deal. They were they were trying to finesse a um a solution to an impossible situation that the whole system had put on salary caps. Uh but it was humbling for them. They had to go back to basics. But they really you know as often happens when you go down into the, the championship, you rediscover yourself as a team. You get the, the passion back, the basics come back. And I also think they realized that you know Rugby life is quite short, um, and let's start enjoying ourselves a little bit more. Let's start expressing ourselves a bit more because we are really good players, and sometimes we don't really show it. We just show that we're powerful, consistent, um, resilient, but let's show that we're also really skillful. Um, I was very struck with something Alex Lozowski said last week, and he was sympathising with Wasp, wasn't he, and his dad was the former captain there. And he was saying, like, I know what it feels like because – other teams out there a couple of years ago were trying to get us. They were trying to finish us off, put us out of a job. I'm slightly yeah. paraphrasing what he said. And I suddenly thought, you know, that 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 doesn't go away, that feeling. That has been running for 24 months now. And, they, you know, there comes a moment where you have to have that moment of fulfilment. And this season has been it, and this final was that final moment of fulfilment. And I can see them really becoming a, a top side again. Uh, the only caveat being Mark McCall saying that, you know, the, the salary cap stuff that is now in place means they're having to lay off players, even you know from this squad. So that's that's going to hinder them a bit. But I think they they're really back on track, and I'd I'd look out for Saracens next couple of years. I think they're going to do some serious damage. Are you saying that on a European level as well as a? I th- well, certainly domestically, and I think they have it in them to get very competitive again in Europe. I mean, you know. <laughs> They lost at La Rochelle. They didn't play the right game plan, but they weren't a million miles away. And, you know, La, La Rochelle were a pretty high benchmark. You know, they're not that far away, Saracens. Nick, you mentioned Owen Farrell. <laughs> he certainly one-upped his, his old mate, George Ford. Um, do you think that's him having one hand on the 10 shirt for England? Um, and if not, does, is, is he at least a shoe in for a start? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess on form... Um, he's finished the Premiership season pretty strongly. He didn't have a great Six Nations and he didn't have a good autumn. So um, I, I I still think that, you know, it's not it's not a done deal, but I do think he's probably in pole position. Incidentally, I didn't think that Ford played badly at all. I thought he played, played pretty well. Um, and, uh, you know, Marcus Smith, isn't in the mix at the end of the season because Harlequins weren't weren't good enough to be there. 
but um you know i mean he 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 had his ups and downs this season but he's you know he's proved that he can live and uh, and thrive at test level um certainly if england managed to get a uh, a, a a a sort of a formidable enough pack which they don't have at the moment but uh, yeah, I think that I think that the fly half thing is is still is still pretty open. But I think um, you know Owen Farrell has made you know has taken a chance to make a statement. Nick Powell, what's your take on the not the Ford Farrell debate or the Ford Farrell Smith debate, but the fact that Farrell seems to be at the peak of his powers with Saracens? And to be honest, that's been the case for a decent chunk of this season, and then that's not been translated to an, his you know, his performances in an England shirt. Is it to say that he's playing more unhinged at Saracens or, you know, without a leash around his neck, so to speak? Well, I think um, Steve Borthwick and anyone who's supporting England uh, in the World Cup can be hugely reassured by what they've seen in the last few months of the season, um, in particular in the playoffs and especially in the final. Uh, Fundamentally, a lot of the, what the, I would say the top four premiership teams, well, top three, Premiership teams had this year was a real command of the basics, an ability to play in all conditions. Um, and in the final, what you saw was, yeah, there were more mistakes than you would see in a Champions Cup final. But you saw two teams that could move the ball around well in attack, um, who were disciplined. Uh, so and 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 led by two fly halves who really had a command of the game. And so I think. You've got three months now looking looking into the World Cup. That is a huge amount of time. We've seen loads of teams take huge strides in that period when they've been able to be together, working towards a game plan in time for the tournament. Um, and whatever route or direction Steve Borfitt goes in, he would do well to pay attention to the way those the, the top three sides have played this year in the last four or five months in particular. I think that's really interesting. It reminds me of something that I think it was Elliot Elliot Daly, and I'm paraphrasing as well now, but he said something along the lines of referencing the loss from last year, that feeling of when you don't play any rugby and you play the sort of kick territory game, the strong up front game without the expansive rugby necessarily and losing anyway. And Brendan, that sort of rings true of England a little bit lately and certainly mm. the England performance against... France or Ireland where they didn't really take it to them. Do you think that's a mindset that could be transposed into the England setup as well, since it's so well worked so well for Saracens? You'd hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, something's got to change a little bit with England. They've got still got some really good players uh, at their beck and call, who we know under different circumstances can play. And I'm, I'm loath to use the word expansive game. That, that, that always gives the wrong impression about barbarian style rugby. It doesn't have to be expansive. It just has to be attacking, fast, fluid, directed. Um, so, yeah, I think England could well... Well, they must. They actually they have to go down that direction to a certain extent. Um, it's just how difficult it is to wean themselves away from a slightly more conservative game. But um, as Nick says, three months is actually an endless camp, isn't it? And you've got... You know, for once, these World Cup warm-up matches for England are actually going to be really worthwhile. I mean, I always get a bit fed up with them and they can be a bit tedious, but England have got a lot on the line in those warm-up matches uh, that they, you know, everybody's going to be flat out who, who gets picked. So that's going to be a prospect. So that gives, is it four matches they've got? That gives Steve Borthwick quite a bit of time still to try and instill that, that new approach. 
Well, that gets me thinking, and I think you men are in a much better position to answer this than me, but have England ever been in a situation this close to a World Cup where there are fewer guaranteed starters, so to speak? Probably. You'd struggle. I mean, 2007, I, I think... Yeah, that was as well. There was pretty, pretty, pretty much a state of flux. I think. Um, look, I just wanted to make one point regarding the Premiership, and and it and it's pertinent to England as well. Um, England's defence was poor. They shipped uh, a lot of tries. Now I feel that that is a reflection of the Premiership. So we've got all this rah 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 flag waving about what a great. Uh, spectacle, great games, and so on. And there were some very, there was some good attacking rugby, but it always has to be measured against defence. Now, I'd say that there were three teams with a with a with a good defence. Um, I'd say the two finalists, Saracens and Sale. Old Wolfpack thing came came good for Saracens, uh, particularly against Northampton, where they shut them out. And at the end of the game against Sale, you know the guys who came on Taylor and Hunter Hill. You know, they put in a pretty prodigious sort of 15, 15 minutes or so. Um, but my my real issue is is that I think that there are three teams who are defensively probably better than sound. They're good defensive sides. They're Sale, Saracens and Leicester. The rest are not at the races. You know, the rest of the premiership are, are, are like a bloody leaking ship. Um, so, you know, that's... Uh, that's my take on it. And and England need to take their lead from the three teams, um, you know, who've got good defences because the World Cup will not be won by playing basketball rugby. No. What no. do you feel the causality is there? If Well, I want to say not, well, eight of 11 teams, not, you know, seven of 10. We'll get to that in a second. But if eight of 11 for the moment have four defences. Well, there are two words, promotion and relegation. we'll get to that in a second then um i just want to say a little bit about sale uh nick kane i'll come to you again do you feel it's another 17 years before sale are in a premiership final again no definitely not i think that they've got um they've really got the makings uh there they've got they've got some good young players coming through uh, they've got um, an owner at the moment who's prepared to uh, to put the uh, the funds in. I think that the the problem that they've got is is that I don't think they own the AJ Bell and Sale are a side that need you know need a home, and I'd say that they need to own their own home. But other than that, what Sanderson has done um, is build you know steadily and. Um, Actually, I think in, in I think he's been there th- uh, three. Is it three seasons? This is the third third season, and to yeah. get them into a Premiership uh, final, when they lost their tranche of South African World Cup winners and so on and so forth. I mean, they've outperformed that side significantly. So uh, that's a, it's a hell of an achievement. And um, yeah, I, I I particularly liked. I mean, I, you know that I'm I'm interested in the scrum. I mean, their scrum gave Saracens uh, that you know a real tune up, and um, you know they've got two good front rows, um, you know, complete front rows, and uh, and and they made it count almost, almost. 
And I'd like to see Roebuck definitely play for England and not be another one that Scotland managed to poach. I join you in that. I, um, I think they're sniffing, but I think England have also got him on the radar, haven't they? I he's think played, they've been down to training. Uh, uh, Bren, he's played at age group level Absolutely. right the way through for England. I think he was born in Inverness, but there's no claim that he has Scottish parents. So it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a birth claim. You know, yeah. birthplace claim. And if England don't get him, they need, you know, well. England need to wise up a bit because they're, they're being pilfered. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they definitely need to make sure that they, uh, that you know, that they, they put their marker on him. And he's an interesting weapon. He is absolutely sensational in the high ball. He didn't really get a chance in the final. So he took that terrific try, low down, scrambling, diving. But the semi-final, he got an absolutely wondrous try just running flat out onto a high ball, leaping, yeah. you know, out of Dan Bigger or whatever. And that's quite a big part of his game. And come a World Cup, big World Cup match, um, having that weapon out on the wing, it, it could be pretty useful. Mm. Let's look back at the season as a whole now. As we said, the, the final was a great spectacle and it did provide some sort of not solace, but it's certainly been a memorable premiership season for the wrong reasons rather than the right uh, reasons in the grand scheme of things. London Irish, the news is this week, could potentially become the third team to go into administration in the next week. Um, it's currently Wednesday evening and we're waiting on an RFU announcement on whether they are granting a deadline, ex a deadline extension, sorry. Um, we will have London Irish legend and all-time top try scorer Topsy Ojo on the podcast next month, so we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of it then. Nick Powell, are you expecting Irish to go into administration? Uh, well, it, I mean, if you if you read Neil Fisler in the rugby paper on Sunday, there is a hope uh, that it's basically just paperwork on the end of the American consortium um, that they're trying to sort out. But yeah, it's been an absolutely terrible year. Um, they've had nine months worth of this more, the RFU, and they still haven't come up with a a good solution, a good way forward. There's no pressure on the PRL teams to better regulate their finances or to sell their shares um, in in PRL, which I think would sort out debt problems and make uh, English rugby a genuinely fair uh, league system or to go to this potential Premiership 1 or Premiership 2 thing. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's a complete mess and it is... It's so ironic that it's the RFU now putting pressure on London Irish to sort their house out when they have just been asleep at the wheel for, for God knows how long now. Totally, totally. It's kind of stating the obvious, my end, but I read a stat earlier that in seven months, if if Irish do go into administration or do have to, um, are suspended from the Premiership, the Premiership has lost basically a quarter of its clubs in seven months, which, you know, it's just simple maths, but I just hadn't thought about it that way. Um, Nick Kane, does that leave you dreading next season in a way, just because these administration issues aren't going anywhere? Well, I, you know, I mean, look, my my position is, um, is to anybody who reads the rugby paper is, is very well known. Um, I believe in promotion relegation. I believe in a meritocracy. I hate the ring fence. And the owners at the moment, because they've got their own way and they've managed to pull the RFU 
into their their orbit and to do their bidding they have created a stasis in the england in the english game which is really really damaging it um i i'd i'd you know promotion relegation should be reinstalled next season come what may um there are all sort of ructions going on we're waiting to see whether um you know the council uh, manages to um, start holding the board and Bill Sweeney to account. Um, as was said, you know, at the DCMS um, inquiry, uh, Bill Sweeney was accused of being asleep at the wheel. And yet, you know, what has happened is, is that that was that, you know, Wasps and Worcester were in, you know, were, were obviously in serious trouble at that point. And uh, now we've got London Irish in serious trouble. The, 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 the only thing that I'll say is that the premiership clubs, and it was uh, Simon Cohen, who was the uh, chief executive at, at Leicester, who said this, that he said about six, six years ago, six seasons ago, he said that the wages in the premiership were totally unsustainable. <laughs> Now it's not a popular thing to say because everybody feels, particularly given the, you know, the the physical toughness of of, of pro rugby and so on, that the players should be well re remunerated, and I agree with that. They should be, but they cannot be so well remunerated that they crash. You know, that their remuneration crashes the game into the rocks. And the reality is, is that some of the wages that have been paid in professional rugby, not just to people like. Bill Sweeney and Eddie Jones at the RFU, but also to some of the players. I mean, Adam Coleman, I think it was uh, Neil Fizzler um, who, who uh, you know, put out there that that Coleman would be on about just under a million, just under what Charles Piatau was under. Now, I don't know, Coleman's had a few more games this season and it's not his fault that he was injured. But when you look at at, at the wages that are being paid, and the fact that half the London Irish squad is not English qualified, you know, you've got to ask serious questions about the whole way in which the game is being run. Um, the sooner there's an SGM, the better. Yeah, I mean, just to add to the point about wages as well, um, the, I do think that the, the, it, it all comes down to the same thing of us, of the RFU and... Uh, stakeholders in rugby having too much of an expectation about how much rugby's worth. And this has gone back years and years and years. And specifically, when looking at London Irish, they're now playing in a 17,250 capacity stadium that is owned by a Premier League football club that is now in, in the top half of the table and looks likely to stay there. Uh, they used to play at the Avenue in Sunbury. And I don't know whether this was because of the minimum standards criteria, which has stopped two perfectly good teams in Ealing and Jersey coming up. But they played at the Avenue in Sunbury. They got, uh, I, I looked it up today, an average of 3,282 in 97-98, 4,000 the following year. Then they moved to the Stoop, 3,900. And on the basis of that, they then moved into the Majeski Stadium, which was 24,161 seats. And you look at the clubs in the last 25 years and since the professional era that have gone bust. Other than Worcester, where you had no financial regulation of people basically trying to ransack the club of all its assets, London Scottish made to play at the Stoop 
went went bust. London Wells made to play at the Kassam Stadium in Oxford, went bust. Wasps uh, went from Loftus Road, couldn't downsize, in, so moved to Adams Park, miles away from their fans, then moved to Coventry, went bust. Richmond went to the Medeski, went bust, and London Irish now on the edge, paying rent in uh, the Brentford Community Stadium when they could be a few miles up the road at Plough Lane at Wimbledon, which doesn't have 10,000 seats, but is perfectly good for a premiership club in southwest London. And, you know, it, it's rugby doesn't have the same level of commitment from fans. It's not that. It's not like you are going to get 10,000 people showing up every single week. A lot of attendances go up and down depending on how well a team's doing or the, the brand of, of rugby that it's playing. And I just think this delusion that has been allowed to take hold in the professional era, that just because international rugby still does very well, mm. uh, that domestic rugby was always going to go the same way, is has been hugely damaging when you look back. Um, and, and and that's why we are where we you're are. So, you're really. so right, Nick. I was... Um... I'm not a fan of these House of Commons committees and that, but I remember Damon Green sat in on that, the rugby one, and he was basically concluded that it just got a shell, an infrastructure, a game. It's way too big. It's not, it's not sustainable in England at the moment. Stadiums, staff levels, um, backroom staff, it's just not there. The fans for club just aren't there. The money just isn't there. Um, and some, you know, I don't know... How, when that message is going to get through and how it can get through, but it but it has to get through. And and this then comes into the promotion and relegation thing. Like you say, right. who says you have to have a 10,000-seater stadium to come up to the yeah. Premiership? There's no logic in that. There's no sense in Luton, that. Luton's going to play Premier League football next year with 10,300 yeah. seats. Yeah. yeah, and Bournemouth before them, exactly the same. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it, yeah. it, it's shocking. You know, it's absolutely... what What's happened in rugby union... On the RFU's watch is absolutely shocking, you know, because it kills ambition, you know, and 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 you know, you you need ambition, you need aspiration, you know. Clubs lower down have got to have a, a target to to aim at. I, I think that it's been a total abnegation of responsibility. Um, yeah, I, I you know, I. I uh, you know, I mean, how many how many fans have have um, London Irish? What's their average gate at the Brent, Brentford Community Stadium? They'd be lucky to get five thousand. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is often around there, but they've they've had. Uh, I think it got up to sort of eight nine thousand at the end because of the St Patrick's Day game and good attendance yeah. against Quinns and good attendance against Saracens. But I just I looked at that. I remember when uh, well well AFC Wimbledon at Plough Lane had plans. Um, to move in, and I, I thought I thought London Irish had jumped the gun too early going to Brentford because Brentford were at the top end of the Championship uh, in the Football League every year, and AFC Wimbledon would have been much more grateful for the money, and they would have charged London Irish a hell of a lot less, mm. and it would have much better fit 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 their fan base. But it made sense for London Irish to move into Brentford because nine thousand seats that AFC Wimbledon has are not enough according to the the minimum standards criteria, which I found on the uh on the website of the rfu today the first line of the page of the minimum standards criteria says uh they are part of the vision of the rfu to achieve a successful and thriving game across england <laughs> you can decide what you think of that for yourself but yeah but um i mean you're you're right and what's extraordinary is that what they're doing is they're asking clubs 
to invest in massive, massively costly infrastructure without having any real plan for promotion relegation. So they're saying to, to, to clubs, you know, you must have this stadium in place. You know, you can you, you can have 5,000 one year, but it must be 10,000 by the next. You know, I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah, and they talk about wanting financial sustainability, but if they're not allowing someone to to have a, a 5,000-seater stadium or, or a bit less than that and then progress slowly towards 10,000, which, as we've all said, I don't think we need anyway. But so, so what would be better for them then? Would it be better if Ealing moved into, I don't know, Wembley Stadium a couple of miles north um, because that's got five, that's got 10,000 seats straight away. Helium have to um, be, Helium have to be a, a viable financial club. It doesn't matter whether they have 2,000 crowd, 3,000 crowd, 4,000 crowd, or if they occasionally play a match at Wembley. As long as they are, as is close as can be, a financially viable outfit and business, they've got very wealthy investors. That might be their model at the moment. If, if, if it works, it works. You know, why penalise yeah. people for these utterly ridiculous, illogical criteria? And it's hard enough anyway. It's not just promotion and relegation and, and criteria like that. As, as Nick has gone on many times, you get doubly, triply penalised in the championship because you don't know whether you're coming up sometimes until the end of May, June. Your recruitment time is minimal. Uh, you then get the, the thing of, um, you know, trying to prepare in, in, in just three months. You do not get the same segment of money. Nick's the expert on this. Um, you know, the, the your share of the cake of the premiership money. So you're immediately financed, you know, financially penalised in that respect. You've got less time. You can't build your squad. And you've got this ridiculous stuff about having to artificially go into a stadium because it's got 10,000 seats. I mean, I mean the, you couldn't make it up. In the premiership, the central revenue, you know, revenues from broadcasting and so on are equally divided. In rugby, the side that comes up is hobbled. Absolutely, you know it's mm -hmm. hobbled. They 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 might they'd be lucky if they get two thirds of what the Premiership clubs get. And there have been instances where clubs have come up and and have effectively had half of what the Premiership clubs have uh, have had. Mm. I mean, it's um, you know, I mean, you could you can't make it up almost. Um. So, and it could be so different. It could be so different, and every whether it, whether it be two, you know, two ten team divisions in an up Premiership umbrella or two twelve team divisions. The point is, is that promotion and relegation shouldn't be crippling to either way. Yeah. And like down in in Pro D two, you've got I, I added it up today. You've got seven former French club champions with thirty one titles between them. You know, but they're still chugging along as clubs. They still get seven eight nine thousand crowds they're still there in fact even down in in national one you've got some seriously good old clubs there and it, it all holds together you move up you move down there's that that dynamic and the thing we've got at the moment is completely artificially cut off hmm. you just it's just got no movement and like even just on the basic level it's really you know it's really sad about these clubs going but in a proper system two teams will be coming up now all these players who've been laid off this season, or some of them who haven't found employment, they would get re-employed, probably. Mm -hmm. they, they, they go back into the market, the teams come up, they need experienced players in a rush, sign them. And so the whole thing starts building up again. But if you just put the axe down the middle, it, it just chops it off. 
I mean, one of the big, um, for me, one of the big talking points of the week, in a way, was Eddie Eddie Jones surprisingly coming out and giving a ringing endorsement to promotion relegation. He said, you know, basically the league has 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 declined as a consequence of not having promotion relegation. He didn't say much about it when he was England coach. You know, he's fired a broadside from uh, from his Australian canoe. <laughs> so, Brendan, Nick mentioned um, promotion relegation being the biggest change between now and October. Is that what you feel as well? Should be that, you know, there are no... Quick- I mean, I'm, like Nick, I've always been an absolute 100% behind promotion relegation. I, I see no other way. Uh, it's what sports about is what league rugby is about it's the whole essence of the game and um by either denying it totally or making it so difficult for the so-called promoted side to come up which has happened in the past you're just completely stymieing that process you you've got neither one thing nor the other mm-hmm. so it's going to take a revolution to get it back i think i mean i think you know sgm everything you're going to have to ho- have the whole system reorganized probably along the french style with a few adaptations and that's going to involve a bit of humble pie from the premiership clubs they're going to have to open up and realize that that they are not solely the future of uh, professional rugby in this country well there's there's a huge issue coming down the line and that is is that they're in the process of negotiating a new pga deal and Mm. it's i i think that it's very very clear um you know, Francis Barron uh, still looks forensically at the uh, RFU's books, and he believes that the RFU cannot possibly afford another 200 million PGA. It will bankrupt the union unless they sell assets. And, um, you know, that is, a again, a very dangerous path for the game to take. Yeah. Um, so all in all, there's there there is where we're you know we're we're sort of coming into what's meant to be the the uh, the slow end of the season and uh, building gradually up to a, a World Cup. But there could be um, you know there could be I don't know whether it will happen this summer, but it, it's certainly the the there are moves afoot for the change that Brendan's just talked about. On a slightly separate issue. Um... Nick, am I right in saying that when we've discussed the ability for England players to play abroad, you don't believe in the laws that keep them in the UK? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, at the moment, I think that these guys, when, when you're talking about a quarter of the clubs in the Premiership going bust, you know, I think that it, those are extraordinary circumstances. And if these guys... Are, are you know able to get employment i mean tom willis is a, is a, is the pro- sort of prime example but if they're able to get employment there uh, on better terms until until the english game sorts itself out uh, you know I, I i i do believe that that's right but i actually believe that it's right you know freedom of um freedom of movement is 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 important i think in in professional sport and um you know you you i don't know you look at what's happened to england with this ring fenced um the ring fencing of england players if you like i.e. that they can't go overseas and you look at england's results well what good's it done us you know the the the, the rfu have paid a fortune 
for a for a PGA, and their performances have declined. So you might just as well instead of having all this, you know, this overblown training training camps and weeks and so on and so forth, you might just as well go back to the RFU regulation, which you know, which says, okay, you've got you've got the players during the international window, and that's it. So I do agree with you, um, but just to play devil's advocate, how does that align with the convalescing of the Premiership if you're saying to the Premiership's best English players that they can then go abroad and you don't have those star attraction names that we've already spoken about, the struggles of ticket sales and putting bums in seats to do that? I mean, I'm I'm sort of intrigued by this because you, you look at the end of World Cup cycles and the fact that the All Blacks usually sort of lost about, you know, you know the best part of a team and so on and so forth and their system kept on producing the new stars and so it goes on and one of the things that that i i think we're we're much too fixated on here is the idea that those stars of the game are absolutely you know they're they're they're, they're sort of cast in 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 bronze you know they're 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 not they're guys who have performed particularly well, but there are young players coming through all the time and they need to get their chance and they need to have their head and show us what they can do. And indeed, many of them are doing that. Well, one of the things you look at is that the England under 20 side has also fallen off. And there are serious questions about whether the academies are bringing through enough players. I mean, there are all these issues and they're all coalescing in a sense, but the idea that the premiership can't thrive by bringing through young stars, new young players, I think is, uh, is, is, is wrong, you know, and some people who've been bought in at huge salaries from overseas and have kept English players out of the premiership, frankly, haven't been worth the money they've been paid. And here's the other thing, Nick, I, I did a bit the other week. I got Stuart Farmer to give us a list of the players who played a thousand minutes or more in regular premiership rugby. And it was 76. And three of them, I think it was, were what you call England squad players. I think there was Joe Marchant, Ollie Hassel Collins, uh, might have been Joe Marlow. I can't remember if Joe was in some of the early squads. So you do all this ring fencing of the players, but they're not actually pumping up the club game. They're not there week in, week out. They're just right. there occasionally, you know. So it's all, it's all self defeating when you look at it. Yeah, I think all very, very um, valid points. I am going to draw a little line in that discussion to come back to, um, hopefully when we have top, Topsy on next month. Um, to lighten the mood before we finish, let's focus back on the rugby um, rather than the off-field issues. And I'm putting you all on the spot with a player of the season, a moment of the season, and a surprise oh. or break with player of the season. Uh Nick Powell, I think you knew about this in advance, so could I trouble you first in case you have a few answers prepared? Yeah, I even prepared notes. <laughs> oh. I was worried I wouldn't be able to compete with the other two, so I made sure I came prepared. Um, well, I'm throwing you in first then. Yeah, well, player of the season, I think I think the Premiership uh, got it right. I mean, if we're looking specifically in the Premiership, um, Ollie Lawrence, just brilliant. Uh, I've really... The, the, sort of revolution, um, the Van Graan revolution uh, at Bath would not have taken off had it not been uh, Farley Lawrence arriving. Um, his 
ball carrying, obviously try scoring and offloading um, have been hugely influential in, in just giving them a new lease of life, an exciting player um, that the supporters have really got behind. Um, and the one positive, the one single positive that he hasn't helped, you know, that has come out of the awful stuff that happened to Worcester has been that he's been able to help help Bath really rediscover their mojo and hopefully progress forward from this. Um, and it was just capped it off perfectly that he uh, obviously got them in the Champions Cup at the end, although having more than three quarters of your teams in the Champions Cup is a little bit ridiculous. But again, that was part of the last segment, so we go into that. Brendan or Nick Kane, can I trouble you for a player of the season? Player of the season, um, first of all, I'd endorse what Nick said there about Ollie Lawrence. I think he's been absolutely superb. And if you were trying to narrow me down for a moment in the season... He scored a try, I think it was away at Sarri's, and it was disallowed. And it was one of the best tries I've seen for a long, long time. And it was absolutely superb. And it showed everything he had. Power, pace, step, vision, everything. Anyway, apparently it got called back for some forward pass about 100 yards down the pitch. And that was a moment. But my player of the season is Ben Earl, uh, who I haven't always been an out-and-out fan of. You know, I've always thought for a while, you know, Tom Curry's ahead of him. And I've always failed to fully appreciate what a really good player Ben Earl is. And you tune in and, and watch the matches week in, week out, and the, the internationals away, and every single match is player of the match. And Eddie Jones used to talk about hybrid players and, and centres who could play flanker and flanker who could play centres. Ben Earl could absolutely 100% be a premiership centre and probably a test centre. He's got such a range of skill. He's got such gas. He's a very intelligent player as well. Um, I really hope Steve Borthwick is on to him for, for England World Cup. They they need Ben Earl in the squad. I Probably the team. think he'll be in the squad as a centre rather than a flanker. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see it. I would love to see it. You put it forward as a suggestion, didn't no, you? And I, I put Sam Simmons. Freddie Stewart. Well. I, I, I put Sam Simmons forward as a suggestion for Tor, which uh, would also work. But I think Ben Earl is a better candidate now, arguably especially as he can't seem to break into the back row for God knows what reason. Um, Nick, who's your player of the season? Well, you know, I mean, I, I suppose it's a, it, it's a difficult one because I don't think that you, that I don't want to uh, leave Saracens out of the picture in terms of player of the season because they were such a dominant side. I, I mean, they were at the top of the table almost from start to finish. Um, and obviously the player, you, you know, Bren's gone to Ben Earl, but the player who has had to step in, and it's just sort of typical of the way that they do things, is the bloke who's retiring, Jackson Ray. You know, and and in terms of contribution, not just this season with Billy Vunapola out, so during the critical part of the season, you know, the, the crunch part of the season, Vunapola's been out and Ray's come in, and 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 filled up, you know, filled the hole in a different way, but um, has been e exceptional, really. Um, young players, we've already talked about one of them, um, and that's Roebuck. Um, and some of the tries, you know, the 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 try that Brendan referenced, where he took the ball on the full, was spectacular, you know. And those are the sort of tries that, um, you know, that that. 
set people apart. I, I mean, it's a pity that really Henry Arundel has not had enough game time, either, funnily enough, at Irish <laughs> or for England to um, to really uh, sort of, you know, cement his place as um you know as 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 the main firework but um Roebuck certainly stepped in and the other lad carpenter i thought um you know at fullback i th i thought to come from nowhere uh to you know to come from the lower reaches to to produce the sort of uh, to bridge the gap if you like so quickly and be so effective was um you know was very very impressive and funnily enough, he didn't have the best of games on Saturday, but he still produced a couple of moments that made you think he'd really got something. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think he's gonna he's gonna have a big season next season. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't think he's gonna break. I don't think he's a bolter for the for the World Cup, but um, he, he's got a serious future. No, yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, the other person who who deserves a mention from the South, well, you know, I mean, our our pod guest last week, um, Rob Lazowski. But uh, sorry, uh, Alex Lazowski, but also um, Max Malins. I think he's had a he's had a fantastic season, um, and after being jettisoned, you know, he's shown for Saracens what he's capable of. So actually, you know, Jackson Ray and Max Malins would be our pair of us players of the season. <laughs> you mentioned Joe Carpenter, who would be my breakthrough player of the season. Um, like Brendan said, he didn't necessarily have his best game at the weekend, but he really just has come out of nowhere and is bridging the gap between any of the other England fullbacks and Freddie Stewart. Um, who else have we got breakthrough player of the season? I know Brendan, you're a big fan of Tom Pearson, and he won. Yeah, well, the, the official the official um, Premiership breakthrough player is, is Tom Pearson. Now we rather think he he broke through last season, and I remember having this conversation a year ago ahead of the Australia tour and banging the uh, the drum for his inclusion on that tour. I don't think he went in the end, but um, no, he's a he's a terrific player. He's got everything in the armory that I can see. Uh, England seem a little bit reluctant to go with him at the moment but of course England have got so many options in the back row like they sometimes don't really seem to know exactly what they want but he's got everything I would have thought uh if Irish go and we hope they don't if Irish go there will be a long queue to sign Tom Pearson yeah I mean one of one of the players who I don't know whether he's a breakthrough player this season I think he probably is in in international terms is uh is Ollie Chesham you know he did come through during the summer tour of Australia, I think. But you know, I mean, he's he came through strongly, and then obviously he he didn't feature in at the back end of the season because of injury. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, another 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 very good player coming through. Nick, round us off. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of breakthrough player, I had Joe Carpenter. Interestingly, both my player and breakthrough player are people that I've been on the Rugby Paper podcast with. So I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. But I would round this particular discussion off by saying it does reassure you to see lots of different good young English players coming through in different positions. It does reassure you that still the fundamentals, development in the grassroots game, OK, there are issues with the academy system, but we are at the moment still producing a lot of good players. And so for, for all the disasters off the field, the, the, there is still a bright future ahead. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Brendan, just before we go, we'll wrap up the Prem discussion there. I thought you might want to say a quick word about Munster. Um, and yes, 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 yes. Uh, in fact, I've just written a thousand words on Munster. 
Um, we've taken the eye off the ball with months. There's been so much going on off the pitch. Uh, there's been fantastic uh, Champions Cup final, really, really good Premiership final. But Munster, the last five weeks, um, I got it wrong. It's not six away matches, five away matches on the trot. They've won um, to to get you know to get to the final and then win the final against Stormers in front of fifty six thousand at Cape Town. And they didn't just win it. Well, they did only just win it in the end, but they actually played early <laughs> in in the first forty minutes. Should have been out of sight. Um, got into a bit of a uh, an arm wrestle and then came back in typical Munster style. And scored a really good try to win it. <laughs> They've had some tough times, Munster, but they are a hell of a a team, hell of a club. You call them a club; they're really a province, but they are, you know, they're a franchise. But they are more than a franchise, Munster. And you know, all the attention's been on Leinster in Ireland, and they are a great team, Leinster, and they have great players. But you want a bit of that Munster dog in the Ireland setup, especially come the World Cup. And I've got a feeling that a strong Munster is, could be a strong Ireland. So I was delighted to see it. They they really won that the hard way. It was a really good final. In fact, it was a really good day's rugby Saturday. Um, so fair play to Munster. They, they, they dug that one out and they thoroughly deserved it. They've done everything the hard way in the past two oh. months. Five games away from home in a row to win the title and four games in South Africa since the start of April, which is <laughs> very typical of Munster, isn't it? Yeah. What a yeah. May has been for Munster fans as well. I mean... You know, winning an away quarter, semi and final and watching Leinster lose the Champions Cup final. I mean, you cannot, <laughs> if you're a Munster fan, you cannot beat that. <laughs> you see Alan Quinlan was tweeting the other day, if anybody has seen his mother, could they send her home? He'd been out celebrating in South Africa and, and ride back home and gone straight out on the lash down Limerick. And, and no sign of her for 48 hours, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> And there was that video, and Monster shut up Stormers fans because there was a video of the Stormers squad, wasn't there, celebrating the Leinster loss um, yeah. the semi final. I think more because they then got the home final. But yeah, even, I think to be oh, fair, that was it. Yeah. Even so, out of context, it probably didn't look so good, did it? Um, mm. But no, great to see Monster get the win and a hell of an outcome in Graham Roundtree's first season um, yeah. as head coach. It started so poorly for Graham Roundtree, actually, as well, didn't it? Um, yeah, he was under pressure, wasn't he? He was under a bit of pressure at one stage. Yeah, I think that, I think it's great. The first his first win, which came I think in round three, was a scrape past Zebra, and obviously lost to Dragons as well in a game. That, I mean, you look at the differing fortunes of those two sides since then. I mean, it, 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 it a lot has changed over the course of this season. Um, but yeah, really, really well done, Graham Roundtree. Well done, Munster. It's fantastic for the game. And the collective story of Graham Roundtree. Andy Farrell, Mike Cat, and who's the other one? Stuart Lancaster, who sort of trooped off heads down 2015 World Cup defeat against Australia. Uh, you know, end of their rugby lives, you would have thought, or so the, some in the media said. And the way they have regenerated, gone and done their stuff overseas in Ireland, and have actually regenerated and changed Irish rugby. Is you know a great story. There's a book there to be written at some stage about those four bouncing back from 2015. Yeah, 100%. Although Stuart Lancaster, his head might not be quite as high as the others right now, to be fair. He's had a tough while, but he has done great things at Leinster. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't got the silverware that perhaps, well, you know, they've had a little bit uh, a couple of years ago, but uh, he has done great things. He has, he has forged great players or helped forge great players there. Without wishing yeah. to um to to deflate 
the whole the whole process. They did it. It's a fantastic win, and particularly in Cape Town, in front of um, you know a full house. That winning in South Africa is never easy. We we know never ever easy for a whole multitude of reasons, and they did it. And you know more power to them. But um, the real proof of the pudding regarding everything <laughs> Irish will be this World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're absolutely right, Nick. You're absolutely right, and they have got the draw from hell. But that, yeah. in a funny way, almost encourages me because in the past, Ireland, you can see, you know, when they had really good teams, you can see the way you could plot their way to the semis and maybe reach the final. You look at it at the moment, you think, well, they'll be out. You know, no matter how well, well, they could easily be out by the quarterfinals. Yeah, but uh, they could also it might just be that. It might they... just be that year that they actually go on and um, yeah. do something. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, uh, def definitely on the cards. I would say to be discussed later. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, okay. indeed. guys, we'll wrap up there. Um, next week, I think we've got Nick Abendanen on after his retirement, so it'll be great to look back on um, his career then. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.